Well, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome. Uh, you are at Cato Institute's Hilton Painting entitled To Mine or Not to Mine, The Future of U.S. Mineral Resources. I am Peter Russo. I'm the Director of Congressional Affairs at Cato, and I want to thank you all for coming out on a beautiful day. So thank you for coming out. Um, in a moment, we will explore in depth the importance of mineral resources to the American and world economies and the impact that federal land management has on these commonly underappreciated commodities. But before we do, I want to call to your attention a useful resource for future study, namely Cato's Downsizing Government fourth page. There, under the Department of the Interior tab, Chris Edwards, Randall O'Toole, and many others make the case for reducing federal control over these tremendously important unutilized <coughs> assets. So let's begin. Patrick J. Michaels is the director of the Center for the Study of Science at the Cato Institute. He is a past president of the American Association of State Climatologists and was program chair for the Committee on Applied Climatology of the American Meteorological Society. His writing has been published widely in major media outlets and scientific journals, including Climate Research, Geophysical Research Letters, Nature, Science, and many others. Michaels holds AB and SM degrees in Biological Sciences and Plant Ecology from the University of Chicago, and he received a PhD in Ecological Climatology from the University of Wisconsin at Madison in 1979. It's been around in this issue for a long time. Right. Well, because I'm at Cato, it seems like I've just been at this for a short time. Time goes very quickly when you're having fun. I'd just like to give a, a, a little bit of information about what we're doing in general uh, at Cato with the Center for the Study of Science and how Ned Mamula, our, our featured speaker, figures into that. Uh, Many of you know that I was with the University of Virginia for 30 years, uh, and at the University of Wisconsin, where I got my PhD, it became very clear in the training of PhDs, and I believe Wisconsin has granted more doctorates than any other institution in the country, that your job, once you got this degree, was to get federal money for whomever you are working. That is the object of the game. And then I got to University of Virginia where I, I, I realized that was the case and I have to say I had some, I applied for some <clears throat> federal money and got it, uh, ringing the climate change bell uh, and you know my department thought that was great. And then as I watched the global warming issue evolve, I realized that the incentive structures in science were horribly askew. And the scientists at universities and, and the academy basically live to perpetuate their financial stream because they are rewarded. They're given promotions, they're given tenure, they're given shared professorships, depending upon how successful they are in that. And nothing comes free in our society when you're dealing with public money. And so I decided, I, I made a pitch at Cato Institute to look at the issues of science generally, not just climate science, but how the way we do science creates unfortunate biases in science. And when I, when I started the center, I got permission to do it. Of course, we didn't have anybody. And once it started, I had, had told people, if you build it, they will come. And sure enough, people just self-identified and said, we want to work with you. One of those is this fellow right here, Mr. Ned Mamula, a petroleum geologist who 
uh, got his bachelor's in geology from Slippery Rock and his master's at Penn State, one of the great geology schools, geoscience schools in the world, and his PhD at Texas A&M. Highly trained, works, has worked in private industry with Anadarko, worked in the public sphere with um, the U.S. Geological Survey and a company in Langley, Virginia. Um, I presume you know what that means. And uh, then he came to Cato because he read our stuff. Uh, he's a wonderful speaker, extremely knowledgeable, and I think you will really enjoy his presentation, and hopefully uh, it will be informative as well. So I give you Ned now. Thank you very much. All right, everybody, if, if you cannot hear me, please let me know. Otherwise, I'm going to assume you can hear me. And it's good to be here, Pat. Thank you for your wonderful comments. I really appreciate that. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. I can see here with these tables that uh, you can uh, really not hold me responsible for being the only thing between you and lunchtime. So uh, by all means, avail yourself uh, for lunch. You know, it was my, uh, and, and I'm, by the way, I'm glad you're here, sincerely glad you're here. Uh, this is a great topic, and uh, uh, you never know what kind of an interest it's going to uh, manifest. I had the great uh, honor to speak here on Capitol Hill last year on uh, the American energy renaissance driven by the shale revolution, and that was also well attended, and we really enjoyed that too. Uh, as Pat indicated, I'm a geologist, geoscientist, and I have worked with some of the leading uh, agencies, USGS uh, among them, and of course the Central Intelligence Agency. They're both excellent at what they do, uh, but I, and I also worked in the oil industry. I accidentally found my way to Cato, and Pat graciously brought me into the Center for the Study of Science. And uh, as far as I know, I'm the first geologist, geoscientist, to break into a Washington area think tank. Okay, so that's history. But we have a similar situation here on Capitol Hill. Insofar as out of the 541 congressional representatives, one has a degree in geology, one. And that would be Congressman Ryan Zinke from Montana. So I haven't met him. I'd love to meet him, talk shop with him sometimes, and certainly talk about mining and minerals. Okay, so let's get started on today's topic, and uh, uh, I'm, I'll be talking from my notes here. You have there on your chair the article in Forbes magazine from earlier this month. This is what the talk is based on, and you can make reference to that. We can have some time in the end for questions. Right now, though, <clears throat> I want you to put everything in perspective. I want you to imagine the great natural resource pillars that sustain our standard of living in our U.S. economy. Right away, the first one to come to mind would have to be energy. It would have to be. Our coal, our gas, our oil, our hydropower, and our renewables all sustain us. A second pillar, inarguably, would be our abundant water resources. Got to have it, and we have it, thankfully. A third one might be the soils from which our foodstuffs come, our timber, and so forth. But if there was only four, and I named the three, the fourth one would have to be, would have to be our abundant mineral resource wealth. 
It would have to be, and we have it here, and we're lucky to have it. You know, minerals are the backbone of our society. They sustain us, and uh, lately there's been an increase in reporting, kind of, I wouldn't call it a spike, but a, a moving up in the, in the amount of reporting about minerals and mining. One of the reasons, and there's not just one, but one reason is because we are now at a point in minerals where we were with oil and gas maybe back in the 70s, where we have the prospect of, and the re actually the reality of, supply disruptions or shortages. And in this case today, I'm going to highlight those, and I'm going to highlight them with respect to critical and strategic minerals, and I'll explain that to you. So basically, and, and, and by the way, if you haven't heard, I'm sure everybody here has heard, just to underscore where I'm coming from, in 2010, the Chinese decided out of the blue they were going to squeeze ever so gently the Japanese electronics industry and they slowed down and actually shut off their export of rare earth elements. And boy, oh boy, did that ever get the attention of the Japanese and the world. And these are the kind of supply chain crises that we need to be more aware of. So although USGS has been on the Hill talking about it and the White House issued a report about it, and on and on and on, we can't really talk too much about it because it's so critical to our economy going forward. Now, before you leave here today, I really, really would like you to leave here with a basic understanding of the following. First of all, why, why minerals are vital. And let me get that first slide for you. That for me, I appreciate it. Leave here today, please, with these following things in your, in your firm grasp. Why are minerals vital? Resources versus reserves. What, what, what does that mean? That's a concept I'm going to explain to you. Critical versus strategic. What's the difference? Where are minerals found here and in the world? Just briefly and generally. I'm not going to get so specific to, to bore anybody. What are the issues impacting mining and mineral supply? That's, that's the meat of the presentation today and the thing that I just referred to a minute ago. Are we experiencing mineral shortages, yes or no? And if so, why or why not? And how? going forward should we secure our mineral resources? That's very important. And uh, along those lines, I want to say this up front. I don't care where you come down on the side, which side of the argument about mining and minerals, or we don't need to mine, tear up, it doesn't matter to me. We can be a, a proponents or opponents of mining and minerals. We, okay, that's not the question. The question is, there are two immutable facts that we need to get through our heads. Number one, the tech revolution and the green revolution, you know, green energy, those two phenomenon are driving the demand for critical minerals like you wouldn't believe, okay? They are just exploding. Every electric car contains more and more and more pounds of minerals and the question is, where are they coming from? Secondly, there is an absolute mismatch between the demand for minerals and the assured supply. 
Not even close. So today's question is really, uh, what are we going to do about it? That's what we want to know. Now, the next slide shows, uh, yeah, right here, thank you. I'll put in a plug for economists. I'm a scientist, but for you economists out there, here you go. Uh, you look at world copper production. Let's look at it for a minute. We're looking at why minerals are vital, the trend, and the key mineral. And in this case, I'm picking copper because it's a bellwether. It's a bellwether mineral. It behaves like the economy behaves. If the, the economy is sluggish, copper is sluggish, and so forth. But in this case, we're plotting copper production versus the world population versus per capita production. And you can see clearly, right after World War II, boom, copper production took off in response to the creation of suburbia and the building of the rebuilding of the world after the war. And then again, look in the late 80s, 90s, you have a, a, the, the line actually changes slope there. Now, all of a sudden, we're in the, we're driven by the tech age, the, you know, the tech revolution. You need copper. Copper's everywhere, but it's, it's, but it's widely needed. And as I said a minute ago, it mirrors the economy. And then finally, at about 19, uh, look, I, I guess 1990, mid-90s, boom, the slope changes again, and it's really driven now by the information age, all the wiring, green energy, electric cars, building of houses, and the like. Okay? So there you go. Those, those, that, that's, there's no denying what you see. Next slide, though. This is interesting. Here, we can see in a few short years the evolution from the big clunky brick type phone to the iPhone that everybody in this room probably has with them. The one on the left required about 30 some odd minerals. And, in the, and, and by the way, let me stop. Today I'm going to talk minerals, metals, and elements. Sometimes I'm going to mix them up. That's okay. Don't worry about it. The periodic tables below each phone show the elements required to make those products, but the, there may be two or three elements in a mineral that's mined. So the, the terms are sort of ubiquitous. Don't worry about those. On the right, obviously, uh, your iPhone, and there's about 70 uh, elements involved in the manufacture of an iPhone. Now, uh, this is high-tech growth, not a surprise, but here's a surprise. Let's look at the next slide, low-tech growth. I mean, you know, what do you mean low-tech? Okay, even industrial minerals are in demand in a growing world. Here's a fascinating uh, stat for, for people who keep tabs on these things. China, in the years 2011 to 2013, I find this incredible, but here we go. In three years, used more cement than the 20th century in America. That is hard to believe, but it's true. The minerals here in cement are limestone and sand or quartz. But high-tech, low-tech, doesn't matter. Minerals are needed. We have to have them. And what did they do with all this, these gigatons? Well, here's Shanghai, speaking of China, in 1987. 25 years later, Peter, if you'll advance that, here is Shanghai. So in 25 short years, you can see and a lot of that is concrete, of course, the rest of it is glass and some steel. But I'm saying high-tech, low-tech, doesn't matter. Does not matter. Okay, let's move on now. Uh, I want to show you the next slide. And basically, 
let, let's think of our situation here now in our country, the Western world, the developed world. Okay, why are the minerals vital? Again, I keep asking the question, and the answer is, if we want to sustain and develop new technologies, the minerals are necessary. We have uh, the renewable energy, wind, solar, we have a whole revolution going on in lighting. That's, gonna, that's taking rare metals, not rare earths, rare metals. Electric cars, different types of industries, and to do all of this, we need to sustain and develop, uh, uh, to, to sustain and develop these, we need to commit ourselves. In the next slide, we need to commit ourselves firmly to mining because everything it takes to make the things that I just showed in a previous slide comes from the ground. So as I say, if it isn't, if you can't grow it, you, it, you probably have to mine it. And at least some of you think that's a little Tonka toy there. No. Four and a half million dollar piece of equipment. So not only do we have to be firmly committed, but the mining industry is already firmly committed. You don't place an order for something like that to go for a spin, okay? Uh, these things are expensive and uh, it takes years to, to, from the time you order it till the time you get it. It comes to the mine in pieces, you put it together, and usually they never leave that mine. They're cut up for scrap after 20, 30 years, if they even last that long. Firm commitment, folks. Firm commitment. Now, okay, so this is sort of chapter one. Why are these, why are minerals vital and what's going on? Let's look now at something that's really misunderstood by, the, especially in the media, and let me try to clear this up for you today here. We all hear the term mineral resources, okay. Sometimes we hear the term mineral reserves, resources, reserves, they get mixed up, uh, uh, petroleum reserves, mineral, it's kind of a mishmash. And here's the secret. The resource is what it is. It's abundance in the Earth's crust. The reserves are defined by the geologist and the economist. Now, this is a 1980 version from the USGS, and I cite them often in this talk. The USGS is the granddaddy repository of all things geological and now mining, simply because in, in 1996, the Bureau of Mines was dissolved, and a lot of that material and data went to the USGS in Reston and Denver. When you have a, a resource that you can see by satellite imagery, seismic surveying, geologic mapping, whatever, you say, aha, here's a resource of, let's say, copper, a copper ore body. When I look at the price of copper, the ease of that ore body coming out of the ground, and all the factors that pertain to mining it, I can define what a reserve is, copper reserve. Just like with oil, if I, if I find oil and gas generally, and I find, and I can define it, I can demonstrate it, measure it, or infer it, I have a reserve, I can book that, B-O-O-K, I can book the reserve, and I can take that to the bank and use it as uh, money or even collateral, because the bank recognizes that reserve, although it's in the ground, as a value, probably only going to go up, not down, but not always. So reserves are defined by geology, mapping, and uh, uh, surveying, and the economy. Obviously, if the economy is down or if the deposit is very deep, it's a marginal reserve. And the, the, the commodity would have to come way up in price for a company to go way down to get it. 
similar for subeconomic. All right. On the right-hand chart, you have hypothetical reserves or speculative. We don't need to get into that right now. Okay. Resources and reserves. Very, very important distinction. Next, and by the way, 1980 USGS. Next slide is something else I want to point out to you. What's the difference between critical and strategic? Critical minerals are uh, sometimes lumped in with strategic and vice versa. You know, just like resources and reserves are used together uh, mistakenly. These two are lumped together, not necessarily mistakenly. You have critical and strategic. Now, here are the things that, that pertain to these two terms. Usually, well, in this case, there's no official government definition for strategic or critical. You may see it, de it de defined in a textbook, but there's no real official definition. It's still evolving. The terms are interchangeable, as I said. The manufacturing function that is affected by the shortage of these whatever mineral would deem it to be critical or strategic. Foreign sources, or when we're importing it, might define it as being more strategic than, say, cement. We saw an example of that earlier, okay? Now, here's where it gets interesting. These, and this goes to the China, Japan, rare earth, magnet, electronics industry thing in 2010. When you have a supply chain vulnerability, that gets people's attention. Because when you're shutting down part of an industry or part of a, a, an economy, this is important. Now, all of a sudden, whatever that thing is that's stopping me is critical. If that mineral or material has to do with our national defense, it's automatically deemed strategic. All right? And we're going to look at that here. Now, the next slide. Just in general, don't nitpick with me, but just in general, allow me to present the metals that are critical, we could argue, yeah, and ceramics. Hey, I got news for you. Clay, lowly old clay, depending on the quality of the clay, is important for ceramics. So we have that to think about. Strategic minerals usually, not always, but usually include strategic metals. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the rare earth elements. Rare metals, two, two different things, similar sounding. Fission elements, which are nuclear, uranium, thorium, polonium. Uh, platinum, everybody, every, all the gals know about platinum and how they would value a, a, a wedding ring made out of platinum. Uh, manufacturers, uh, all of you have platinum in your cell phones. And then finally, the phosphorus, which as you guess, as you might guess, phosphoresces, and it's used in heads-up displays cell phone displays, computer displays, you name it. Those are strategic because they go to the throat of our national defense, and we always have to have enough on, on, on hand. The next slide shows you, and we don't have to get too deep into this, but I'm trying to show you the supply chain risk and what happens. On the horizontal axis, you have a supply risk, and on the vertical axis, you have the impact to a certain segment of the economy because of that risk. And on the right, although it's not easy to see, you have minerals and metals, copper, gallium, indium, lithium, magnesium, rare earth elements, cobalt, and uh, vanadium, tantalum, niobium, and so forth. And we can plot those elements, minerals, on a supply chain risk chart thusly. 
So the ones that are up in the upper right-hand corner, that green one there, for example, platinum, is really, really critical and usually strategic at that point, okay? So this just shows you how the USGS and the National Academy of Sciences is trying to categorize these things. And imagine, you're trying to define something while it's moving in time. It's not easy to do, but that's what's happening right now. Next slide. Okay. When you have a sense of urgency, you really have a sense of urgency if you need to get a jet fighter in the air, all right? To put two jet engines in a fighter, an F-35, whatever, this is what you need. You need titanium, nickel, chromium, cobalt, aluminum, niobium, and tantalum. You've got to have it. No substitute available. So look in the right-hand column of the percentage that we have to depend on for, uh, from imports. It's pretty high. And in the case of niobium and tantalum, not good. Now, aluminum comes from bauxite. We, it gets, we get it from Jamaica. Yeah, not, not a big supply chain risk. But these other ones, yes. And if you look at chromium cobalt, you can see. So, so there's a sense of urgency, or there should be, over these strategic mineral shortages. Now, let's move on, chapter three. Where in the United States are found these minerals metals? And then, of course, we'll get into a world map in a minute. But here's what I want to point out to you very briefly. The, most of the deposits are in the Rocky Mountain West. They're geological. They occur where they occur, uh, if you will. And uh, sedimentary deposits occur in Florida and other places, but your metals, your minerals, your ore bodies, your classic ones are out in the West. And that has to do with the creation of problems in mining I'll get to in a minute. But those are your classic mineral mining locations in this country. The next slide now shows you in the world, and, and again, don't obsess over this, but we have, for example, uh, that United States uh, belt there, the Rocky Mountains, and it extends from Alaska all the way down to the tip of Chile. It's the Cordilleran Belt. It's loaded with minerals. Australian, uh, the uh, Precambrian or the stable Craton here, Craton in South Africa, the, the, the Ural Mountains, uh, the Craton in Europe, and so and up in Canada. Now these are your classic ore body locations through time. Yes, minerals are discovered elsewhere, but this is what the, the, the bulk of our knowledge to this point, okay? And the minerals are listed there. It's not important. They're all important. The minerals are important, and those are the general locations. And we'll come back to this map later. Next slide, however, shows what's been happening in the last, since 2012, all right? From 1990 to 2012, things were straight up as far as exploration spending and research spending because the demand is off the charts. Now, I told you earlier the demand is still off the charts and getting higher. However, since 2012 to this time, that three-year span, exploration, exploration dollars have plummeted by about 30-some-odd percent, by a third at least. So as far as worldwide exploration, the United States comes in at a paltry 8%. Australia and Canada are about double what we are, but they have fallen too. Notice Latin America is up, Africa is up, and the rest of the world is really, uh, I don't know, I should have changed that, but it, what it is is Asia. 
And when you look at some of the mining going on in Mongolia and some of these places, they have world-class ore bodies. They're going wild over there. It's like the Wild West as far as discovering and mining these, these resources. The key to this slide, though, is our exploration dollars are down with respect, with, uh, uh, compared to the rest of the world. And that's probably not a good idea. We want to see that turn around eventually. Now, the next, and the source of that is the Society of Mining Engineering. They're pr pretty much plugged in. Now, let's talk about the issues impacting mining and minerals, okay? What pressures are on the mining industry that are causing the shortages that we perceive? First of all, and there are three categories. I'm going to review each one seriatim. First of all, environmental issue, lawsuits, land use limitations. Let's bundle that into one, okay? And I said to you in the beginning, and I'll read it right here, I don't care where you come down on pro-mining, anti-mining, whatever. There are immutable facts, and this and it's an immutable fact that our exploration spending is going down and the length of time to get a mine up and running is going up. So those are not debatable. Now, the increased cost of litigation, everybody understands that. The projected cost of delays, everybody understands that or should. Now, the third one here, I think I alluded to it before. You have a deposit wherever it happens to be. It's fixed in its location. If it's a deposit of critical or strategic minerals and it's in a bad guy country, you've got to deal with bad guys. If it's fixed in our country and somebody wants to make a park out of it, you're going to have to deal with that reality too. Should we make a park out of it or should we mine it and then make a park or forget the park and just mine it or what? Yeah, I mean, these are things, these all fall under the environmental issue law limitation. This is, this is one thing putting pressure on the industry. The next slide shows you something that's, I think, a little pernicious, and let me explain. Federal land withdrawals have been going on for a long, long time in this country. The problem is, again, the geology is fixed. If I have a, like a Bingham Canyon world-class copper deposit in Utah, if I find another one of those in Wyoming, in the middle of a 10 million acres that the government wants to take offline for the purposes of creating a, a, a nat national grassland or whatever, <coughs> what are we going to do about those minerals or, or shed? A lot of the lands that are withdrawn don't have any inventory of minerals or metals. So you take five million acres and withdraw it, you don't know what's in there. That's kind of like writing a, a check in your banking account. You don't know the balance, but you think you have enough money in. And these withdrawals oftentimes are irreversible. So once the land is out of circulation or off limits, you can't go back in. And that's not right. What if there's a national emergency and we need something? So something to think about. The third reason there's pressure on mining is the idea of delays cost money. Hey, I was thinking on the way over here today, a great example. If you want to build a, if, if say your uh, parents leave you a, a, a building lot and you want to build a house on it, you, you're going to have to get a lot of permits and that takes time. Or what if you already own the lot and you own your house, you want to put an addition on it? <coughs> Same thing, you got to get permits. They take time. 
bunch of people are thinking the same thing you are. Oh, I'll put a, an addition on. Hey, the more permits, the longer it's going to take and so forth. So some of them, as far as mining, take months, usually years, sometimes multiple years. Some of them approach a decade. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And if they go out that long, you cut in half or a third the value of the deposit. And when you start cutting, remember I said earlier how you book a reserve and you go to the bank? Hey, if I own something like that and I have a 10-year wait, I go to the bank, they're going to say, hey, your investment dollars are getting shut off. We can't handle this. It's going to take too long. So the next slide. So those are the three, three areas that I think deserve, deserve looking at. Now, whether you believe what I say or not, the GAO did a report just this year, last two months ago, on the idea of mine plan review process. And what did they find? The chairman of the House uh, Natural Resources Committee requested it, and the key findings are as follows. Number one, mining companies sometimes turn in low-quality uh, mine plans. Now, that may be a junior mine company who can't afford the state-of-the-art mine plan, uh, but it happens, okay? And when you turn in, uh, you know, you've heard the thing, garbage in, garbage out, okay? You, t you, you turn in something substandard, you, you might have an issue. That's on the, the industry side. On the other side of the ledger, we have the government, federal, in this case, land management agencies. Two things to note. Number one, they have generally, according to GAO, not Ned Mamuel now, they have done a poor job at allocating their agency resources to do mine plan review, okay? <clears throat> they have a lot on their plate, I grant you, but they haven't necessarily put enough troops in the field to do the mine plan review justice. And also, the process where you turn in the mine plan, years later you get your permit, that process has gotten out of control and they don't really know what's going on. And when I was with USGS years ago, we used to do mine plan reviews, environmental reviews, reclamation plan reviews, we did it all, we did it timely, we did it right. And the USGS had that massive scientific credibility. If the USGS said it was so, it was so. But once you get like say Forest Service or an agency in there who people aren't comfortable or they don't know exactly what, then it could be a problem. I'm not saying there is or going to be, but it's, the potential is there. Here is the main slide or the main thesis from the GAO report. And if you look, it's just saying, hey, in a period from 2010 to 2014, we looked at every mine plan turned in to the federal government on federal lands, and two agencies were responsible, BLM and Forest Service. The numbers at the top of each bar are the number of mine plans, and the, the horizontal axis at the bottom shows you the length of time that it took. And it goes anywhere from six months up to 48 months, and in that time period, okay, but before that, it had gone toward a decade, some cases 12 years. So looks like maybe things are getting better, but if there's more demand coming, maybe not. We have to think about that. Now, where do we stand in terms of worldwide governments? Well, the big miners, Aussies and the Canadians, their mine plan permit process, a couple of three years. 
Ours can range four, five, maybe up to seven, and probably a little extreme, 10, but it has happened, okay? And I'd hate to be the owner of that mineral deposit because it's gone down. Next slide, I don't have it plotted on that line graph, but this is the, uh, uh, the Chugi Kamada uh, copper deposit in northern Chile. This is the largest copper deposit in the world. This is big time. And the Chileans are, are making money hand over fist. Their co copper is their bread and butter. But even here, permitting is, is, is required and it's taking time. And now they have an issue with multiple year permit process and they're trying to clean that up. So between Canada, Australia, and the US, they would fit in there somewhere. And so would a lot of other countries. In fact, the next slide uh, shows you, back to the, remember I showed you this earlier. I'm trying to show worldwide regulations permitting are more and more required. Even in where I mentioned Mongolia, of all places, now they have environmental permitting, and to China too, so it's all over the place, and it has an effect of slowing things down. I'm not saying it's good or bad, it just slows down the process, and you, it's what it is. And it's probably good that we do keep an eye on the environment, but this is the uh, result of that, uh, uh, of that. Next slide, I wanna talk, uh, as we wrap up here, about the, uh, the idea of mineral shortages. Are we going through them or not? Now, we are 90 to 100% reliant on imports for the 24, for 24 critical minerals. And we can argue this and nitpick this, but we are, we are really, really in a bind because we're dependent. Our dependence over the last 60 years has really grown and it's alarming, and I'm going to show you evidence of that in a minute. But when we get more dependent, like the Japanese were dependent on rare earths to make magnets for their electronics industry, and they depend on the Chinese, and they get cut off, they have that geopolitical risk chain, uh, supply chain risk, and there's no getting away from it. Here, these are the reliance for critical minerals from four years ago, three, four years ago, USGS. And you can look at those down at the bottom, tantalum, manganese, uh, indium, oxide, gallium. I mentioned a few of them before. 100%. Got to, got to bring them in. 100%. The USGS 2015, brand new data is over my left shoulder here, and you're welcome to come look at this afterwards. This is this chart. These are the same. This is updated and flip-flopped so that the most critical imports, the 100% are at the top, and there's that 24 or maybe even 30 of them, 100% need to be brought in. Problem. Next slide. Follow me over the next three slides, please. In 60 years ago, 60 years ago, this American economy was just rocking and rolling with the post-war boom. We really only relied on a couple of countries around the world for what we needed. Canada, our great trading partner and ally. South Africa, same thing. To a lesser extent, Australia and Brazil. 30 years after that, in the 80s, we had all of a sudden needed the, Soviet, the then Soviet Union and China to help us supply our needs. Now, and then China, and then of course, still South Africa, Canada, but then Brazil, Peru, and a string of other countries. Today, 2014, look at what's happened. We are relying on the Chinese for dozens and dozens of minerals. Look at the key in the lower left corner. 
Soviet, uh, Russia, same thing. India now, South Africa still, some Western African, South, Central, uh, South America, they're, they're, they're rocking. Mexico, okay, so th this is what it is, folks. We're importing and importing and importing and importing, and we're going to really find a, a problem. The next slide, we want to talk about how to secure, and I'm going to close out the hour right now. But before I get into this, let me just say this. Tesla Motors, everybody's heard of them. They recently made a decision to forget about rare earth elements. They said, no more. We're not going down that slippery slope of supply chain vulnerability. We're going to have magnets that don't require rare earth elements, and we're going to do it, and we're going to do it now. Not only that, Siemens Corporation said, oh yeah, we feel like you do. No more rare earth elements in these wind turbines. We're going direct drive and we're getting away from the vulnerability of supply chain. We're not going to be held hostage. So Elon Musk, with whatever his name is, Tesla Motors said, not us. We're, we're going to go around the problem before it happens. Companies are getting smarter. Governments are now just slowly looking at this, saying, hmm. That's why you hear more and more about minerals on the hill within the last couple of three months. OK, folks, I want to wrap up. How to improve? Short term? Federal government, please, be better stewards of the land. Land has many uses, multiple land use. We can mine, have parks, we can do it all, but we have to do it smart. Here's something that people don't realize. I would like to see the feds maybe follow the examples of the states. States are really sharp, smart, nimble. Agile. They, they do land management. They do leasing. They know how to collect royalty, rental. They can do reclamation. And I've seen this firsthand. I've been in Montana, Wyoming. You can't tell where anything went on out there. They even put dead trees back in the same place because a certain owl roosts in those dead trees. They have this down to a science. Permitting. A, a BLM permit is about 300 day average. North Dakota, 10. I read about Bear Lodge out in Wyoming. One day they had a permit. It can be done. Long term, next slide. I hope I've tried to give you, uh, or I've tried to give you an appreciation of critical and strategic. That's what we need to walk out of here with. There are alternatives, alternative supplies, substitutions. We're working on it. The restriction of federal land withdrawals has got to be a no-brainer. We need to know what's in the land before we withdraw it. Partnerships with states, universities, and industry are absolutely necessary. We need that. That's how we're really going to gain from everybody's knowledge. And finally, legislation that supports domestic mineral production would probably be a good idea, especially if it narrowed down the window required to obtain a permit. You know, it just makes good sense. And I'm going to end here for Q&A, but uh, before I do, I want to thank you for your attention, and feel free to ask any question, take a look at our dependents up here, and thank you very much.